Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Michael Nyberg, Chair of War Studies at the U.S. Army War College. And I'm here today with Shashank Joshi, the Defense Editor at The Economist and Visiting Senior Research Fellow at the Department of War Studies at King's College London, among other distinctions. He wrote the recent cover story for The Economist, a special report on lessons from the war in Ukraine. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. I'm honored to be here. It's an absolute delight to be in Carlisle and uh, really glad to be talking. Oh, it's our pleasure to have you here. I think the last time you and I met we were wearing tuxedos in the days pre-COVID. Is that right? It was at Sandhurst, in the splendor of Sandhurst, being piped in with uh, with, a, with a British military band discussing the future of war uh, many years ago. Uh, and uh, indeed, we're still wrestling with those topics. And then soon thereafter came COVID and then came uh, the invasion of Ukraine, which I know you've been uh, deeply involved in. It, it. It's a little bit overwhelming to think about just how much the world has changed since a dinner that was focused on the future of war. It's 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 a little humbling, actually, to think about what that dinner was was about. It was. And it was just to give listeners a bit of context. It was a bunch of European armies, along with the U.S. Army, gathering, as I think they do every year in various places, for the Future Land Action Conference, asking what are the biggest things we need to be thinking about. And some of those even then were obvious in ways that have become even more salient today, like the importance of unmanned or uncrewed aerial systems and, and drones. Some of them less so. I recall uh, a couple of issues that, that I think are fascinating. One of them is uh, performance-enhancing devices, uh, medicine, medical aid, things like amphetamines, which obviously, as you know, Mike, have a long history in warfare. Uh, and we see even in Ukraine where there's grueling, you know, platoon-level operations, these questions are back to the fore. And things like deception. I think, you know, we're still seeing the importance of deception. I don't think Western armies have completely reckoned with how important this is, even after years of, of realizing this is something they have to get better at. And this wasn't just a, a any gathering. There were four heads of armies at that thing. I remember saying, at the dinner between, I think it was the Dutch and the German uh, chief of army. So it was quite a conference. Um, I think I'd like to start our discussion by noting that in, in a sense, you are different from most of the people that I've talked to on this podcast. Most of them write books, which means they have long deadlines and they can think about 100,000 words, 115,000 words. You write on incredibly tight deadlines and have to do the very challenging thing that a writer has to do, which is to say something in a short piece. So I'd like to talk about those two challenges you face as a writer, both the the time press that I know you're on and the need to say things succinctly. So let's start with the deadline. How often do you usually have from inception of an idea for an article to having to turn it in? On a thematic piece where there's a big question, the future of uh, the U.S. Army I'm thinking about now and we've been discussing, or uh, the meaning of uh, the evolution of space and military operations, I could have weeks to do something like that. Uh, it doesn't mean I'll be doing only that, but I can squirrel away interviews, read a couple of books, read some pieces. That's kind of leisurely, even if there's other stuff to do. But we are a newspaper, as we call ourselves. We're a magazine, of course, but we call ourselves a newspaper because we cover the news. And 
we then have to be confronted with whatever's happening. And just to give you an example, a couple of weeks before we are recording this conversation, uh, I was putting my children to bed, reading them a bedtime story. And suddenly I looked at my phone and I saw that Yevgeny Prigozhin's plane had blown out of the sky. And I said to my wife, I'm really sorry, I have to go. Please finish up bedtime. Thank you. And I ran to my desk and I began writing and I had to convey who Prigozhin was, why this was important, his position in the mutiny in a few sentences, what we knew from flight tracking websites, what my sources were telling me when I called them up on the phone. And I had to do all of that in a couple of hours and get our piece onto the website so readers could have that news when they needed it. So how do you do that? So an event hits, you have to deal with something that maybe you kind of saw coming, like the Ukraine counteroffensive. I'm assuming you could prepare for a little more because it's an expected thing to happen. Even though I think a lot of Western observers assume something would happen to Prigozhin at some point, you obviously have no idea the timing and the exact nature. So what do you do when something happens that is as contingent as that? How do you start to get your head around the topic and start to think about how you're going to present this to readers? We look at our notes and say, did I have a conversation on the Wagner Group in Africa a couple of weeks ago with this government official that may have clues about something interesting about what this may mean for their operations in Mali or the Central African Republic? I will look at primary sources. In this case of this conflict, that often means things like Russian language telegram channels, telegram being the social media site that is the popular uh, domain for Russian military bloggers and others posting on the campaign. What are they saying? What are Wagner-affiliated channels saying? I may call up experts I know, maybe colleagues of yours who are experts on Russian military operations in Africa or who understand the Russian political system. And then we have to write not just succinctly, but also in a kind of entertaining way that pulls people in. And I remember thinking, I know how I'm, how I'm going to open this piece. And it was a quote from Bill Burns, who a month earlier had said, I don't know what's going to happen to Prigozhin, but I know that Putin likes to serve his revenge cold. And I thought to myself, that's the line that's going to open this piece. And sometimes you begin with that line and the rest of the piece flows from that. So how much time do you give yourself to research? I mean, as you're doing that, as you're making your phone calls and as you're looking through your notebooks, the clock's ticking in your head, right? You've got to get something, I assume, to your editor or how, how much time do you give? And is there a point at which you say, I got to stop this phase and I got to go to the next phase? The Economist is, we're not going to be a wire agency. So we, we often may not be first to the story, but we want to have the best story, the most analytically subtle, interesting, detailed. So we'll take a little bit longer if necessary. But in this case, we're talking maybe two, two and a half hours from the story breaking wow. to the copy being edited. And that's pretty tight. I would co... Uh, um, I would treat these as kind of concurrent things. I would begin researching, write a paragraph here, talk to a few more people, tinker with the paragraph, write a new one, go back to Telegram. And this is a breaking story. So, of course, at the time, we were looking to see what uh, data was coming out of the Russian authorities, what bloggers were saying, what data was coming out of the flight tracking websites. It, it was evolving. So what's and, true at noon isn't necessarily true at 2 p.m., Absolutely. Right? And the next day, we uh, had to tweak our story and say the Russians have confirmed that he's dead. Uh, you have to change these things. And, and, you know, this is a huge difference to how my colleagues, my counterparts would have done this 20 years ago where our print deadline was a Wednesday night and we would have filed the story. And if it happened on a Thursday, hey, too bad, you wait till next week. That's not how it is anymore. And actually, I will say the Progosian story had an added um, a bit of spice to it because it was on the day we finalized our copy for the magazine physically. Mm. So our editor was saying, look, I want to put this 
a, a little note on the front. What should we say? We had to write, and one of my other colleagues wrote an opinion piece, a leader piece to go at the front of the magazine. So we're often scrambling. By the way, I woke up on February 24th, 2022, uh, and I ripped up everything we'd written for that week's magazine on Russia, Ukraine, and the build-up at the time. And I started writing a new piece because Russia had invaded Ukraine. And I definitely want to get to that, but I'm still fascinated by this major news story happens and you have three hours to get your head around it, figure out how you're going to present it, find your quote from, from Burns, and then start to write. So how does that process work for you? I mean, do you know going in approximately how many words you're going to have? Is that something that's directed to you? Or can you tailor that the way you think you want to do it? Or is that more or less, are there are there sort of matrices that The Economist would use for that? If it's a breaking story, you can write anything on the web as long as you like. But we feel that we owe it to readers to be succinct. We could, I could give you 2,000 words on Prigozhin. Of course I could by the end of this t today. Is that what you really need to read? Or can I give you a thousand words that have the critical information? Because people are busy. People are reading this against other things with family pressures, time pressures. So first of all, we have to be succinct. We, know, we, we cannot write uh, uh, as much as we, we, we sometimes wish we could. Um, I think the other thing is um, uh, we sometimes you need to slow down to move fast. You know, you, you, you're a historian, um, and, and I know that if certain stories break, let's say the Prigozhin mutiny, I remember speaking to my colleague Arkady Ostrovsky, who's our Russia editor, and he said, like, I'm not going to chase this story right now. He just opened his copy of Pushkin and began finding, you know, inspiration in Russian, I love that. Li Russian literature and the times of troubles in Russia, because this does have deep historical resonance. Yeah, I love that. Sometimes I will go look back at the, the 91 coup and what was Russian television doing during the 91 coup, famously playing Swan Lake. And let's think about, you know, what is that? What are they doing today? What are the historical resonances? Sometimes you just, you need to give readers that sense of perspective, even in a fast breaking story. I, I was in Hatchards in London, the famous bookstore in Piccadilly, um, when I got the message basically saying you have to come home because they're going to shut the borders. And I overheard someone from the city, a, a banker. He was, on the, he was on the cell phone, obviously with his boss. And he was saying, look, I'm in the history department of Hatchards trying to figure out what the hell is happening. And I thought on the one hand, I was like, that's beautiful. On the other hand, there, there are no easy answers here. And they're not going to find them in this part of the bookstore either. But, <laughs> but going back and looking at Pushkin, looking at how people reacted in the past. So how, but how often do you have that ability to slow yourself down. I mean, as you're sitting at your computer or a notebook, do you feel a clock ticking in your head? Or are you are you thinking, I'll get this done when I get this done and it'll be right when it's right? Oh, there's a break. There's a, there's a clock. There's a clock ticking, definitely, uh, for, for fast news, for breaking stories, whether that's, uh, you know, a new phase in the Ukrainian offensive or whether that's uh, a, a new Chinese move around Taiwan that we didn't expect. There's a clock ticking, particularly if we want to get it out and get it read. We want to put it out by the time our newsletter goes out in the evening. Um, if it's an audio piece, of course, it has to get into the, the daily podcast. And we, we may have to do it you know, by a, a, a 11 a.m. UK time to make sure our American listeners can pick it up. So the clock is absolutely ticking. And sometimes you can't polish things as much as you like. You just have to give people the facts. But this is why you have to know your beat. Right. You, 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 if I came to a story completely fresh and I knew nothing about Prigozhin or Wagner or the way the FSB operates in Russia or Putin's long history of uh, often violent revenge against his perceived political or, or, or other opponents, I would struggle 
we have to have some of that knowledge in our heads to be able to draw upon it as a reservoir of knowledge and facts and anecdotes and quotes and stories when the time comes. And I will say from a purely research point of view, things like Google Books are godsends. Absolutely. Because I will think, you know, I didn't remember that, um, uh, you know, uh, Gordon Barras or Anthony Beaver or someone wrote that line but I can't find it and I can just immediately find it and plug it into my piece and write it for the fact checkers. Look, look on page 55 of this book and we can do that. And that's a new thing. You know, we couldn't have done that as easily 20 years ago. So in, in, in a sense, you have two types of stories that you're writing. You have this sort of longer range, um, I don't know, strategy of Ukraine or something like that. And then you have the sort of, honey, you got to take care of the kids stories that, that you're writing. Yes. What happens in the latter case? Um what is your what is your beyond the thinking of the kind of racking your head for for material sort of in writing what other tricks do you do is it a case where you immediately kind of caffeine up or do you go to a computer right away do you take out a blank sheet of paper and start looking and start outlining things how do you do this when you're feeling that that clock ticking in your head I need a quiet space, a little bit of calm, a cup of tea. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm English and, and it would be a struggle to get it done without a properly brewed cup of tea. So you do that first and sit down in a, in a quiet, calm place. Not always easy these days with young children, you know, milling around, tearing up the place. But, but I do need that, which is why, um, you know, I, I think I write better from home often. But also I think it's a question of finding your own style. Some people need the outline. They want the know the five key points are going to hit in this piece. They want the structure. They want the, the dramatic arc of the piece. I don't do that. I just start. I kind of want to know how the opening is going to go, how the lead is going to go, whether that's the news straight in, whether that's an anecdote that sort of elucidates something, whether that's a historical parallel or, or as we call it, a piece of color, right? Uh, I could say Evgeny Prigozhin was sitting on the hot tarmac in uh, Mali's airstrip last week. Little did he know that, you know, his plane was harboring terrible uh, uh, dangers to himself. A little bit of color. So I start and then I find the piece moves from there naturally. Of course, if you're writing a book, I wouldn't advise this because, you know, you could end up with a crazy structure and have no no shape to it. But in a thousand word piece, generally you can get by uh, and and you just take that story on and, and, it, and it flows. But you're doing that because you already kind of have a structure in your head, right? As you said, you're already racking your brain about what do I already know about Wagner? What do I already know about Prigozhin? What do I already know about Putin? So you're not starting from nothing. It's not like you're... You're you're literally racking your your brain for what you want to do, right? You have a you have a kind of a structure in your head. You have some of the big picture things you want to say, and I know, for example, uh, if, I, if I'm not boring you on Prigozhin, um, I knew I wanted to say uh, that Putin had a long history of revenge against his opponents, and I wanted a paragraph on touched on Litvinenko and Skripal and Boris Nemtsov and these other people he'd had killed or attempted to kill. I knew I wanted a paragraph on what this meant for Wagner in Ukraine, which I thought was not very much because. Wagner was not very important in Ukraine right now, but I also knew that it needed a paragraph on Africa. And then I wanted a little bit on what this meant for Russia as a state. And by the way, here's where I should say, these are joint efforts. And I did get a little file from my colleague, which means they sent me 500 words to plug into my piece. So, so we often work collaboratively like that. Um, but you know, one of the key skills is giving your shape the structure after it's after you started. And that's often, you may think you have two paragraphs that are completely unconnected and that has no structure. What you need is a bridge. You need the right sentence that takes you from the previous paragraph to the next one and say, you know, of course, this is a mystery that will endure, but in the short term, 
commanders in Ukraine will be wondering whether it means makes a difference to them. Mm. And that can sometimes be a little bit contrived. Uh, you know, maybe an academic article, a peer-reviewed academic article, you wouldn't worry about stuff like that. But for us, we do have to worry about it. And that bridge to connect your paragraphs together, stitch them together, can often impose uh, structure when you didn't think you had any. Mm. I want to talk a little bit to make sure we don't run out of time here about the the special edition that you did recently in The Economist, what, last month uh, on the future of war. Uh, it will probably not come as a shock to you that the thing that I noticed about it, we talked about it a little bit earlier today, uh, three First World War references uh, that I think you made in that in that piece about the future, uh, which certainly caught my eye, and a phrase that I'm hoping was yours, uh, that the war in Ukraine is Ypres with artificial intelligence. Uh, was that your, your it was it, it was my phrase, okay. yes. My, my, one of my other editors suggested the Silicon Valley in the Somme. And well, I that would have been nice too. That would have been alliterative at least. And I'm aware these things may make a, a historian wince. And I know here I'm talking to a particularly a First World War historian. And, and, I, and I, I understand these may seem like gross simplifications. I think they're intended as kind of heuristics to help us un understand the paradox, which is that you see things that would be so familiar in outline, in superficial outline, to soldiers a long time ago. I mean, the, the central role of artillery that predates the First World War, um, the role of cover and concealment, the enduring role of uh, digging foxholes, right? Simple stuff like getting a shovel and digging. Stuff that we, I think, in Western armies just maybe haven't thought as much about recently. But at the same time, the way that technology suffuses all of it, whether that's having the reconnaissance drone ahead or, uh, you know, the... 4,000 Starlink SpaceX satellites orbiting above you that allow you to communicate from that trench line back to your artillery piece. And that, that paradox is what that was trying to convey. No, it didn't make me wince at all. In fact, it helped me because I was working on, I uh, just turned it in, an article for a Greek NATO journal on uh, why the First World War analogy has come back into the discussions about Ukraine. So your piece was one of the kind of jumping off points. And what I liked about it was the um, the, the the reference back to the past, but Noting that there is something distinctively futuristic about it, and the Silicon Valley and the Somme is a would have done it too. But I think the Eep with AI is probably better. But I think the point I'm trying to get at is to cover something in the present. You need to be thinking both kind of horizontally and vertically, right? You need to be able to understand Wagner is going to affect Africa. This is not just a Ukraine Russia story, and you need to be able to have these kind of reference points in your head as you go backward. Um, so I guess what I'm asking is how. How uh, deliberate are you about that? Or are these things that are just in your head because of the experiences you've had, the things you read? You and I were talking a little bit earlier about the books we've been reading recently and how those ideas are shaping the way we're thinking about our writing. So how deliberate are those choices or how much is it that the, the caffeine jolt from the tea that is making the synapses in the brain connect? They're very deliberate. And I'm acutely conscious of the fact that there is a temptation to declare that everything is new, radical, and different. This neophilia and that, you know, drones are changing everything and nothing will ever be the same again. And I know that that's not the case and that we just need to look back at the historical cases to a little degree. I need to tell my readers that uh, trench warfare is not just a function of, you know, uh, Ypres or the Somme. You see it in the Iran-Iraq war. You see massed uh, armored formations maneuvering in Operation Storm in Croatia in the Bosnian Wars in the 1990s that you see um, major air attacks and 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 sort of uh, infantry assaults in the Kargil War against with India and Pakistan and if we forget this 
we forget that history. Uh, we forget those cases. We we f- we we tend to view everything as if it's completely new, and that's why that's important to me. Keeping those those parallels, those analogies in mind, it helps us distinguish the bits that are the old, and helps us ag- see against it the bits that genuinely are new. I talk to people a lot that I think that the, the key phase of writing is the editing. It's the response to feedback that you get, that you don't want to be the kind of writer that just says, I'll do everything so-and-so told me to do. On the other hand, you can't be saying, well, I wrote that paragraph at two in the morning. It has to be a really great paragraph. So walk me through how that process, I assume your what you write must go to an editor. Does it go to somebody else? Or is there primarily one person who's giving you feedback? No, we have quite a, a, a involved editorial process. If it's for print, um, I will write for a section editor. If it's a piece on Ukraine, it'll be the Europe editor. If it's a piece on uh, satellites, it might be the science and technology editor. And they will they will, they will will do the first edit. Then it may go to uh, the uh, foreign editor if it's, if, it's a, if it's a piece for the Europe section and, and uh, he may read it and edit it. It may be just a couple of notes here and there. He may say, hang on a minute, this isn't good enough. <laughs> go back to square one. And then it will be edited by a night editor who looks over every piece in the magazine. And then a senior editor, sometimes the editor-in-chief, will look over everything again. So already I think I've described four or five editorial layers. And by the way, I have to get everything fact-checked. So I have to provide sources. And a fact-checker will go through it line by line. If I quote you, Mike, they'll say, have you spelt his name properly? If I quote a fact saying the weight of tonnage of shells on the Psalm in March of this, you know, in May of this year was, was this many thousand, they'll go back and find it. They'll check. Mm. And they will look for other sources. So we really do that. So that is a crucial part of the process. So you must have developed a thick skin as a writer uh, to be able to get something that you've struggled very hard on. Your children are yelling for you to come play and the tea's not quite right. And, you know, you, you, you sort of intellectually kind of own this piece. And then it comes back rather badly cut up. Um, what I do when that happens to me is I give it time. I just get step away from the thing for a couple of days. What do you do if you don't have that luxury? You have to live with it. You know, this is a there's a military it's a military like hierarchy. You know, you 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 could shout and scream at the editor, but it's their call. They, you know, it's their their responsibility. And and you know, writers can't always be dispassionate about what they've written. And I agree, time is one of the ways to do it. But sometimes, you know, I find. Um, uh, uh, there are different editorial styles. Some will just lightly edit your piece and you begin to realize that and you 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 be more careful about how you phrase stuff because you think they're going to wave it through. Others will tear it apart and rewrite it. And, and often you may get really frustrated, but I, what I've often found is that when that's happened with longer pieces, particularly longer essays where, you know, the editorial process is more convoluted, you begin to appreciate and see things in your writing that you never knew were there. They've pulled them out. They've accentuated them. You embrace, you have to embrace that. You have to have a, a, a thick skin, but you have to embrace it and see, you know, the positive side of that. So if you have a long time to work on something and there's not that time pressure, do editors almost serve as kind of writing coaches? Do they, do they try to work with you and say, okay, what is it exactly that you're trying to convey? Yeah. Or is it normally a process of you looking at it and going, wow, they really cut that up? Editors vary wildly, I can tell you that. Um, even good ones, they, you know, they're good in their different ways. And some of them will cut it up and say, there you go. And you you sort of may say, hang on a minute, that's not what I meant. And you know, look, this, this violence may be done to your arguments and to your ideas. It happens. But the best ones will say to you, what are you trying to say here? Because, you know, you haven't said it terribly well, but let's find a better way to say it. Or your point here would be a lot stronger if you addressed what the PLA is doing about the same issue, because we would see it's not just a Russia issue. So they are, in that sense, writing coaches. They are 
Also making sure, by the way, that we're not slipping in too much jargon or specialist knowledge because we may be close to our subjects, but they know the average, I don't know, uh, a school teacher in, in Ohio who's reading my article may not be. And I may have forgotten to say exactly where Zaporizhia is or exactly what a 155 millimeter shell is. Yeah. But, but again, that must be a process. As you get more confident in your writing, as you've grown more better known, better, more famous as a writer, do you find yourself better able or less able to respond to criticism? I, I've known people that it's gone both ways, where you say, one of the things I have to develop as I become uh, a more experienced writer, I have to know how to respond to criticism. And I know other people who say, look, I've written more than that editor. Why is he or she telling me X? I've become much more receptive to that kind of feedback. I think that's the sort of mature, little maturity as a writer as well helps. I've done this job for five years. I'm not a veteran, but five years, you get used to it. But I think the important thing I always find is, are they staying true to the nuance of the idea? What I what I can't abide by is a flattening out of the nuance. You know, in writing, I think there's a kind of trilemma between accuracy, nuance, and readability. And you're always trying to balance those three things off. You can't maximize all of them. But I never want to be in a position where I'm maxing out readability and it's a fun, easy read, but I flattened out all the ideas and importance of this in ways that, you know, because ultimately I'm accountable to all my readers, but if you're reading my piece and I'm making World War I references, I want to make sure that at the very least, you're not going to violently object to me, you know, that, that it'll pass muster. And that's a little voice in the back of your head going, is the expert going to be okay with this? And if the editor flattens that out, I will push back. So it's almost a Clausewitzian trinity of your own that you're dealing with. And my guess would be when you're writing on tight timelines with fewer words, nuance is probably the hardest thing to make sure that it, it stays in there because nuance takes time and it takes it takes a lot more words, really. Totally it does. And it requires not just more words. It also requires language that isn't always intuitive, right? We're familiar with intelligence agencies and estimative language, the language of probability, and where words mean particular numbers. You know, the words likely is associated with a range of probabilities. That's not always the case in mainstream writing, but I'm conscious of that. And I know that if I'm saying this move means a Ukrainian breakthrough is likely, I'll stop and think, hang on a minute, do I really mean that? Or do I mean a realistic possibility? Do I mean something more nuanced than that? So it's about the language as much as the number of words you have to explain it. At least I find nuance is something that comes in the fourth and fifth drafts of whatever I'm writing. So to have to do it at two in the morning before it's due, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in admiration of you for being able to do that. It can't be an easy thing. I, I'm also the, the, the ulterior motive that I have here, listeners, is that I want uh, our students to be comfortable with people that are going to edit their papers, people like me, uh, and to understand that it's it's done in a constructive spirit. But it it does take a certain level of maturity. Like you, I think I'm better at it now than I was when I was a young writer, when you can get, you can get possessive, you can, you can develop a sense of ownership over a part of a thing that you wrote, simply because you wrote it. I would just say, well, very simply, try and be attached to the ideas, not the words. Yeah, great point. And, and if you're struggling, and the editor is changing, you don't like it, help them understand what you were trying to achieve in that paragraph. And they can help you do that better, but they need to know what you were trying to do. And it isn't always obvious. Yeah, that's a great point. What, what other tips would you give as we, we have writers out here that are going to do uh, very similar to what you do? They're going to write papers, hopefully not at two o'clock in the morning when it's due the next morning. But um, we have Army War College students who are turning in papers in the next hour, in fact. Uh, what would you recommend? What, what, what tips would you give to, to writers? 
I would say the most important thing, particularly in the areas we work in, military, national security, defense, is simplicity of language. We are in a domain unavoidably aflush with buzzwords and with acronyms. And that's okay. It's a profession of arms. It's a profession. It will have its own technical vocabulary. But you must know what that language is and what it means underneath it. Don't use it to conceal an uh, obscurity of thought. That's, that's, you're, you're fooling yourself if you do that. If you use the phrase combined arms maneuver, uh, uh, ask yourself, do I really mean something specific by the word maneuver here? Or do I just mean advance or movement? And, you know, it's okay if you mean something specific, but spell it out. Know your audience. Um, if it takes an extra clause or a sentence to say, by which I mean, Use that. And maybe in the back of your head, ask yourself, if I was reading this out to my uh, my mother, father, sister, brother, spouse, who's not in this field, would this make sense to them? And if not, how would I unpack it in a few extra sentences and go that extra mile? Uh, astonishingly, the sands in, in Buck's uh, hourglass are running out already. So I want to ask you uh, what you're writing on right now. What 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 is? Uh, do you have a project that you're on right now on a short-term project, or are you in a little bit of a break now? I'm working on a lot at once, and I'm thinking about Ukraine's offensive. I'm thinking a lot about the future of the U.S. Army and how it's modernizing and taking lessons from Ukraine. I'm thinking about a piece on the future of sea power, the revival of sea power in, in, in the modern world and what that means and thinking rethink new thoughts about blockades and things like that. Um, and then I'm always thinking about the role of technology in war, uh, whether that's you know AI automated processing of satellite imagery or how intelligence agencies and militaries are using large language models. So all these things are buzzing around in my head at once. And when that happens, are you are you the kind of person who can work well when you have multiple projects in your head? Or are you a person that kind of wants to do one at a time and clear them out? No, I, I have to do them together because, you know, I'm here. Here I am in Washington talking to a bunch of interesting people like you and others. Um, I have to do these interviews at once. You know, I'm, this may be my only shot to see the person at DARPA who works on AI. But I have to see them two hours after I've seen the person at the Defense Department who knows about Ukraine. I have to juggle these things at the same time. And you just flew in from London. You're flying back to London. What are you reading on these flights? Right now, Mike, I'm reading A History of Vietnam by Max Hastings. I read his memoirs over the summer on a beach in Northumberland in northeast England. He reported from Vietnam. Lots of interesting thoughts. I read oral histories of Vietnam. And I thought, hey, I've never read a good history of the war. I really want to get to grips with this. And you, know, you and I have been talking about this, but it's striking uh, how difficult it is to, to think dispassionately and clearly about that war. And um, it certainly taught me a lot. And I see flashes of parallels. You know, I saw, I'm, I'm on the chapter about Dien Bien Phu and the, the attack on Dien Bien Phu. And I saw note that the attacks attackers were able to find the antennae to identify the command posts in the French HQ and could strike them directly. This connects directly to all the debates we're having about how Western command posts need to become smaller, have smaller signatures. So I get a lot of inspiration from this kind of reading. So is this deliberate on your part? I know it is with me. I try to read horizontally as much as vertically. That is, I don't just read in my field. I'm reading a lot about Jordan and the Middle East right now. Um, do you do that on purpose too, to kind of give you a wider circle of context and a wider circle of, of reference points when you're doing this this very quick writing in the middle of the night? I, uh, totally. I, one of the great books I loved for the summer was uh, James Glick's biography of Richard Feynman, the great particle physicist, but he was also at Los Alamos. And you think, look, I'm learning about, you know, quarks and 
subatomic particles. And that's that's cool and interesting and important. But actually, this guy's life intersects with Los Alamos, the atomic bomb project, John von Neumann, the history of computing, um, all these other things. Uh, and, and, and that will hold me in good stead when one day I need to write about quantum computing and national security or when I need to write about AI and Alan Turing and von Neumann and their role in this in the prehistory. The little nuggets I've picked up, they just sit there, they float around, they knock around, and, and you never know when you're going to need to draw upon them. But but I, I don't want to be too utilitarian about it. You know, I like reading good books just for the sake of the good books as well. Yeah, I do tell people that's one method for breaking out of writer's block is to read horizontally, read stuff that is tangentially related to what you're doing, but not directly. And you'll see some connection that, that may well unlock an idea in your head. Well, Shashank, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us. I know you're on a very tight timetable for this trip. This has been a, a, a real treat to talk to you. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this episode and send us suggestions for future episodes. You can subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcatcher of choice. Please rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can hear about us so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time, from The War Room, I'm Michael Nyberg. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.